or reflecting on the here and now <clears throat> Dhamma, timeless, Santitiko Akaliko Dhamma. So it's not finding anything, it's recognizing. When you're looking for, for Akalika Dhamma, timeless, then you, you've got, you grasp the idea <coughs> of timelessness, the concept, and then you're looking for something influenced by grasping a concept. And so it's, you know, this is how we trick ourselves into, you know, endlessly seeking and searching, trying to find something, the truth or reality or God or Nibbana or whatever. We, we get the idea, we grasp the, the words, the perceptions, and then we try to look for something that, that we think is, fits that perception. So like the the question now in modern society, the Anglican Church and dealing with uh, lack of faith and then, uh, you know, the question of existence of God or that these are, we, you know, we, we grasp these ideas of God. Do you believe, uh, Christians generally say, do you believe in God? And then, you say yes or no, but do you kn you know that you know what what uh, do you know God? Do you know what what you th do? You, are you aware of what you think God is, or that you don't believe in God? Believing or not believing in God is the same thing. The problem still exists because if you don't believe in God then it means you don't believe in what the church teaches as God you know say so I don't believe in that old man white beard up in the sky or you know, they got the ch childish version but then you get more th maybe sophisticated formulas as you grow up but it's still perception isn't it grasping of words concepts And then you're trying to find that, or you, you 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 don't you haven't really observed the grasping of the concept, but you come from the concept itself, from the grasping process, without awareness of what you're doing. So, like awareness, then the Buddha instead of pointing to um, believing or disbelieving in God. The Buddha used uh, the noble truths rather than metaphysical dogma. So it, it's, um, this is why for people of theistic religions find Buddhism so, such a anomaly, such a strange thing, or, you know, doubt it's even validity as a religion. But it's, uh, the Buddha's going to take something that's quite, but now, ordinary to every human being, dukkha or suffering, and, and then uh, exploring suffering. 
investigating it. So it's not something you believe in, it's something you recognize. You say, right now I feel unhappy or discontented or depressed or lost or anxious or worried or ill at ease or, you know, whatever mild or severe forms it might take. You certainly, it's not any, it's not esoteric or mystical or subtle. It's ordinary. It's not something I believe in. Because I can, you know, I can see it. I, I know when I'm suffering. When I'm unhappy, when I'm angry, upset, confused, anxious, worried, self-conscious, frightened, and all like that, I know there's a knowing of it. It's not, not a kind of subtle state of mind that I have to have uh, special conditions in order to see. But when you're using terms like God, then that tends to, uh, that word itself in, in English is an English word. It ha brings up all kinds of associations. A, a child's vision of God, old man, white beard up in the sky, to, uh, you know, a more kind of mystical form of love or whatever. And it's in, and in Christianity, of course, it's personified. So you, you know, you get this, this sense of a, being somebody or a person. God loves me. And this is a sense of, I'm separate. I'm some, I'm the inferior one, God is the superior one, and I need God's love. This is, this is, uh, you know, it's called humility. But it still can be a form of, of uh, sakyaditi, isn't it? Because it's based on a sense of, I am this person with these faults, these uh, problems, and I need God's help and God's love to guide me and help me, to love me and, and make me feel safe. These are all words, and they can, you know, they have a different effect on some people. If you, it can be comforting or irritating, depends on the individual. I know when born again Christians come up to me and say, with great intensity, looking into my eyes, say, saying, God loves you, you know, I feel irritated by it. <laughs> It doesn't inspire me. But some people might find that very comforting. You know, so this is where, you know, where I'm not saying that I shouldn't feel this way or that somebody that feels comforted by such a statement shouldn't feel that way, but I'm just noting the way it is. There is the unborn uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Ati, ajatang, aputang, akatang, sankatang. 
Uh, there's a statement, but it's it has no personal quality. You can't you can't make a person out of the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Yeah, there's no way you can create anything out of that. But it does affect, you know, we we tend to just see it in terms of abstract thinking. The unborn, but you know, what is that? You know, it leaves them, you know, I can't imagine, I can't create images of the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. I can create celestial images of God and and angels and Brahma deities and devadas and, and bodhisattvas, saints. I can create, you know, I've got quite good ability to to create fantasies or images in my mind. And, and even coming from Christian background, I can easily form views about God, create images of God in my mind. Or even see it, you know, reflect on it more with abstract language philosophically or metaphysically you know so it it it's more it isn't so so coarse as a old man white beard up in the sky kind of god or santa claus or anything like that it's it's more sophisticated more uh, abstract than that but when it comes to the unborn uncreated just observing, reflecting, the negation of everything that begins and ends, isn't it? Unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Well, that doesn't leave any space for imagination. You can't imagine it. So this is knowing, isn't it? And then I just encouraging you to explore consciousness right now. And I'm just, this is what I've found out, sharing this knowledge with you. Then the Buddha used terms like Nibbana, Anatta. So they're negations too. They leave nothing left. There's nothing left you can imagine. You can't, you know, you, we tend, it's easy to imagine Nibbana as kind of happiness forever or something, but it's, uh, you know, a better place than heaven. Now we can, you know, we can even create absurdities like better than best, things like this, you know, total uh, grammatical absurdities. Nibbana is better than Christian heaven. Christians, I've heard, I've heard Buddhists say this, Christians only take you to the Deva realms, but Buddhism takes you to the true heaven, the highest, the Nibbana, <laughs> into, into we're better than they are, kind of. And then the, then the Christians can say, well, he, like the Pope, the present Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, views about Buddhism was it's kind of auto-erotic. It's an interesting take on it, isn't it? 
you get you kind of get the idea of something you know transcendent but it's not real like christianity so it's uh, like a one upmanship you know ours is better than yours well that's the thinking process isn't it the thought does that thinking is best good better best bad worse worst it's the hierarchical structures because it's linear it has it has uh, you can't transcend, there's no transcendence in clinging to thoughts. You can create an idea of transcendence, but the reality of transcendence is intuitive. It's not, it's not uh, about transcendence being higher than, than uh, what you're transcending. So this is where mind sati sampachanya Satipanya, these words, Pali words, quite useful concepts to to use for investigation. So investigating language and thinking, you know, it depends on memory. It's Sanya Sankara. So Sanya Sankara is uh, memories and then the thinking process, emotion, emotional habits. And so the sense of I am, just this, just this simple grammatical statement, I am, is a concept. And it can be stated as, a, as a, just an assertion of presence. I am, you know, I'm here, I'm am. It's not. It's not personal yet, is it? Just a statement of presence, which is true. Then I am Arjun Sameo. Then it. Then it's defining this I am as me as this being here. Now, when when you're recognizing, begin to realize pure consciousness before you create anything into it. Pure presence. As long as you try to figure it out and think about it, you'll, you'll just, you can fool yourself, delude yourself, or deny its possibility, or try to find all kinds of scriptural proofs or definitions. But this is why I'm encouraging you to trust your own ability to reflect rather than, than always see yourself as somebody who has to depend on what others say, what others tell you, or what scriptural authority says. And so this is like, like an empowerment when you take the refuges of Buddha's Dhamma Sangha. Because on a personal level, I could get it all wrong, couldn't I? I have personal tendencies, preferences, different cultural influences, generation gap, masculinity, age, character tendency, all these could influence uh, 
my thinking process and how I interpret and experience life. Being American, being cultural background, being brought up in Christian family. All these, you know, the cultural conditioning that I've received from from birth has been very much in, influenced by Christianity and Western civilization, modern science, psychology, Christianity and Judaism, Greek and Roman culture, idealism, American idealism. So these are, this is how the, the, the conditioning of the mind is, has all these different uh, habit tendencies, ways of looking, perceiving. I'm older than most of you, or all of you, probably. <laughs> so a different generation. That has its influence on how I perceive or interpret experience. But outside of that, before any of that come and go and change, but that which is constant, unchanging, continuous, is the consciousness. Through all the personal views and opinions, fears and desires, and so forth, it's, they all arise and cease in consciousness. Consciousness is like this the screen on a movie, isn't it? The, the images change, but the screen is always there. The light allows the images to be seen on the screen. This is the getting back to the reality of, a, of, of, of the here and now before the movie starts, before the drama, before the I am and me and mine arise and cease on the screen. In contemplation, there's five khanda teaching, rupa, vedana, sannyasankara, vijnana. This is an expedient way the Buddha used to investigate reality here and now. Self, the sense of yourself, sakyaditi, these are how you create your sense of individuality, of separateness. Sense of yourself as a separate body. This body is me. I'm a separate body from you. And uh, th this is sanya sankara, isn't it? I'm identifying with my body. And it is separate from your body. So, you know, it's not telling a lie. It's not a delusion. But the, the ignorance is that I identify with it. My body is separate from yours. The sense of me, I'm the body. And you're somebody else. Now, on a conventional level, this is all right. You know, there's nothing. But it, but it tends to bind us to this illusion of separateness. The separateness is our experience of life. You and me, of something opposed, something threatening me, something separate, and even in forming relationships with other individuals. We become emotionally dependent 
the sense of ourself depends on the presence of the other person, of feeling safe or loved by the the presence of somebody else. Because uh, we, you know, we've not explored or investigated Dhamma. We merely operate from uh, the conventional realities, the emotional world that we create. So our emotions are very real to us, you know, how I feel and is is my reality. Like in monastic life, there is a sense of loneliness because you you don't you can't form say intimate relationships in the way you can when when you're as a lay person. physical, physically intimate or emotionally intimate relationships with somebody else. And it's, uh, you know, this is not conducive form for that kind of relationship. <laughs> Brahmacharya. So, you know, you do feel lonely. You blame it on a monastic life. Or you can blame it on yourself, just saying you're not, you you just can't find anybody you can trust or really give yourself to. We've, you know, there's all kinds of melodramas around this. Great tragedies and dramas are created around the love relationship between human beings, individuals. So all this is, repeat, it's not a criticism, I was pointing it out. The point of brahmacharya then, of celibacy, is not some kind of sense of we're superior to people who aren't celibate, or we're pure, or, I mean, we can become conceited and arrogant. Uh, Sakyaditi, he can create celibate life, brahmacharya life, is something makes me feel better than people who aren't. Or it can make me feel frustrated and lonely because, you know, I'm celibate but lonely. Now in uh, reflecting on this, this ability to observe, doubt about celibacy or attachment to it. The way the ego can can become, you know, increase your sense of self-importance and being better because you're, you're chaste, you're celibate, you don't indulge in vulgar sexual activities with others. And all that one can become quite unpleasantly arrogant about being holier than thou. This is one of the problems in religious uh, orders, isn't it? Because that's how the, the the thinking process works. We think good, better, best. This is the best. This is purer. That's vulgar. That's worse. That's disgusting. That's inspiring. And so we go on and on into the perceptual realms that we create. 
of which is the best and which is the worst. Notice with awareness that it's not about best and worst or higher than. It's so ordinary, so simple, that it, it doesn't have anything you can grasp. There's nothing to grasp. That's why we miss it. Because we're used to grasping. Our nature is to grasp. We're conditioned to grasp things. Trying to get, trying to get rid of, control, resist. It's it's not no thing. Mindfulness, sati sampajanya. It's not a state you create. It's the the simp, simple reality of, of of paying attention here and now, of recognizing, realizing, rather than trying to find anything. And so the thinking mind can't grasp this. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense on the conceptual level. The unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So we, if we don't recognize this, then we tend to just manipulate the conditions. Rearrange the furniture in the room. Or, you know, that's what we do with life, is just try to spend our time rearranging the furniture, changing the conditions. Or the Buddha teaching is pointing to, not to the furniture or the conditions, but to the space, to consciousness. Now consciousness then is, you don't create that. Whether you feel fulfilled or lonely, separate or one or or you feel like you're the best or the worst, or whatever. Consciousness is the same, isn't it? It's not, consciousness is not wonderful and fantastic. It's ordinary. It's now. It's not absolutely fantastic. It's just not noticed, because it doesn't have any quality that, that, that grabs our attention. Where emotionally, you, you know, you might be feeling absolutely fantastic and then that's a wonderful feeling and it's better than feeling depressed and uh, worried about life. To feel absolutely fantastic is better, isn't it, than feeling depressed and worried. To feel a purpose and meaning to your life is better than feeling that there's no meaning. Life is a is a joke, and it's just uh, it's got to put up with it. It's better feeling than the other. These are these are qualities, you know, that we can see in ourselves. Sometimes we we can feel blissed out, absolutely fantastic, or uh, depressed, anxious, worried. And we can compare. One is better than the other. That's fair enough. These are forms, conditions, depending on other conditions. To feel absolutely fantastic, you have to have the conditions for that. You know, where everything is just wonderful and everything's going your way. And 
and so forth. The conditions support that that beautiful feeling. And then we can talk about better and worse, and the best and the worst. And this is this is the created. The the born, the created, the form, the condition. But the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Now this is what what I call intuitive awareness. You recognize it. And to recognize this you know, you, you're not you're not trying to annihilate the conditions, but just let go of them, release this obsessive attachment and identity with the condition, with feelings, with the the body, with the sense of self, with views and opinions. It's not getting rid of. It's not suicide. It's just releasing this obsessive grasping around the conditions like relaxing releasing is not is not a destructive act it's not because i hate the conditioned realm and i'm going to destroy the world because that that's still the self isn't it i'm i'm think the unconditioned is my refuge and i'm going to destroy all the conditions is idiocy the conditions are the way they are you know so some are Absolutely fantastic, and others are absolutely horrible. They can go from from one extreme to the next. Praise and blame, happiness and suffering, success and failure, true and false, good and bad, right and wrong, high and low, heaven and hell. All these are these, these are words that describe qualities, forms, conditions, the born the created, the form, the conditioned. But the unconditioned is this. And now when I do this and I'm... sound of silence is noticing it. Now I use that as synonymous to pure consciousness. Not because I have some kind of doctrinal position to take, but because it works for me. When I, uh, and I'm not trying to make some pronouncement about it, but but merely it's purely practical and functional. Noticing this sound of silence, because now it's so, so obvious, so easy for me, You know, the sense of loneliness drops away or the, the tendence, habit tendencies. Sakya Diti Sila Bhattabharamasa. But I'm still conscious. There's still an alert. There's an alertness, a presence here and now. It's, it's, it's real presence. It's not a kind of blissed out state where I'm no longer functional. I'm so high that I can't even uh, put on my own socks anymore. (laughs) In fact, it allows me 
perspective on on practical things, on putting on the robes or eating the food or whatever. It's not. It doesn't. It's not a high state where I'm beyond the vulgar activities of daily life. I'm too good for eating food or gross activities. I'm living in a higher realm than the rest of you. It's, this is a. This includes everything. The vulgar, the gross, the refined. And it's very discerning is possible. Discernment or panya comes from this. And Brahma Viharas come from this. And you try to develop Brahma Viharas from the ego level. You know, certainly better than trying to develop bad qualities on the ego level. You know, so I encourage people to practice metta and compassion, even if it's even if it's coming from sakyaditi, because at least it's it's better than developing uh, destructive, mean, nasty, selfish, <laughs> violent <laughs> hatred towards others, and that. It's better than that. But in terms of the reality of Brahma Vihara, these are non-personal. There's not, I have, I'm somebody with a lot of metta or a lot of karuna. But these are called divine abodes or states of purity that when there is mindfulness, then our relationship to the conditions is through metta karuna mudita upekats rather than through liking, disliking, and and approving, disapproving on a, on the condition level. Proving of good behavior, obeying the rules, keeping the laws, performing your duties, being a good sport, being on time, keeping yourself clean, brushing your teeth. This is all praiseworthy in how we should be, uh, rather than lazy, dirty, sloppy, <laughs> unclean, and things like this. This is, uh, this is not praiseworthy. And society, you create problems in the society with People don't don't want to be around you if you smell bad and and uh, are sloppy and vulgar and unpleasant. So discerning, you know, knowing the world as the world, and discerning the unconditioned reality of here and now. Once once that is, once there's a confidence from this this kind of knowing. Then your relationship to the vipaka kama of your life, the the body the, that you have, the emotional habits that you you've developed, the, your thoughts, views, opinions, memories, tendencies, inclinations, good, bad, right, wrong, whatever. We we see them now not in terms of value judgments and uh, from the self view. 
a very hierarchical structure of the best to the worst, we see them for what they are. Sape Sankarani Cha, Sape Tama Anatta. So in this way, it is a kind of metta practice, because metta just is not judgmental, is it? Loving kindness, as, as we interpret it, is not something of, you know, when we do the formalities of loving kindness, it's not about spreading love and, and that to all the good things, good people, good beings, and, or spreading more to them than to the evil ones. And it's not about quantity or percentages. Who deserves my metta? You know, who is it? What group of people deserve my metta? And, and you know, percentage-wise, how much should I spread to Buddhists and, and how much to uh, Muslims? Because I, you know, I'm a Buddhist, I should spread my more 90% of the metta to the Buddhists and only 5% to the Muslims? <laughs> or the angels or the devils or whatever, you know? This is ridiculous. This is a joke, isn't it? The metta pavana is, is the, it's about approving, liking, or disliking, or judging who deserves and who doesn't. But it's, it's recognizing. You know, it's a kind of uncritical acceptance of conditioned phenomena, regardless of its quality of good or bad. It's non-criticalness, non-preference, metta, metta bhavana. Well, on a personal level, that's very, that's imp- ideally, we can like the idea of unconditioned love. But in, on a personal level, it's impossible. We, we like conditionally. When you, when you confuse love with like, like is a condition. And, and when things aren't likable, you can't like them. When things are, unpleasant, mean, nasty, you can't like that. You can't approve of something that is not worthy of approval. It's not, this is exploring the uh, dualistic nature of language and thought. But then when you you take the English word love and, and align it with metta, then it isn't about liking or approving of anything. It's it's knowing. It's non-critical. It's not dividing and and punishing and uh, judgmental toward the devil or the the bad the criminals. But it doesn't mean we like them either, personally. It doesn't mean we approve. But it, it's a, it's going to a different, it's a different way of looking. It's, it's not, not, not judging or criticizing. And to judge and criticize, you have to think, you have to give qualities, structures, 
of the best to the worst. This is not about best to the worst. It, awareness includes the gamut from the best to the worst. It's not, it's not excluding anything. So that's only possible through awareness, through sustained awareness, through mindfulness, sati sampachanya, sati panya. Because sati panya allows this individual being here, Ajahn Sumato, to accept everything for what it is, acknowledging it's the way it is. from the 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 conditions that I'm experiencing through my emotional habit tendencies or memories or whatever my peculiarities are, my idiosyncrasies, my habits, my inclinations, good or bad, right or wrong, faults, virtues. Because this awareness is is not personal, it's not Ajahn Sumato. It's not, but it includes Ajahn Sumato and everything else. So it's not kind of just dismissing Ajahn Sumato as, as something, you know, some illusion that I can't be bothered with anymore. It's, it includes all the all the illusions, fantasies, good, bad, indifferent, qualities, conditions, whatever I'm experiencing, whatever there happens to be arising and ceasing in consciousness. But the acknowledgement, recognition of consciousness, rather than being uh, caught in my preferences for the conditions that I'm experiencing. Our consciousness is not personal. So it is, it's in terms of the reality of this moment, it's universal because it, it includes everything. Everything I can think of and all possibilities of everything I haven't thought of yet. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, and, and it's, not person, and it's uh, you know it's not something I have more of than you do, or anything like that. If I start claiming it, pers- personifying it, personalizing it, then I've lost it again. I'm back into the samsara of self, sakya ditti. So just notice, it's just this. It's nothing special. It's ordinary. Tamada, when human beings don't know this, we create endless complicated problems. We become neurotic individuals, neurotic societies full of hatred, prejudice, violence, wars, exploitations, taking sides, developing weapons, is what we do now is that we use our our intelligence to develop most of the money is being spent on hideous weapons 
that destroy things, destroy other beings, other human beings, environmental conditions. When we're caught in the condition realm, then we're in the realm of fear. Because conditions are, they're so subject to, to different uh, possibilities. And so there's fear. When you're aligned with the condition realm, then, then fear is the main problem with life. Because even, you know, any kind of personal security or safety, there's always threat to it of some sort. And there's always something possible that can, you know, you can be a David on a beautiful home and, and then suddenly realize you've got cancer. And then at, at, on a personal level, isn't it? You have thoroughbred horses, pedigreed dogs, swimming pool, everything like a Deva realm. You don't have to go into the ugly parts of the country and see the poverty and the and the ugliness. You can live in an ivory tower, still you can get cancer. And if you don't get cancer, you still get old. And even if you're so wealthy, you can perform the best cosmetic surgery. You know, you can only do so much of it. Inevitably, it, <laughs> it can create illusions uh, that make you feel but when we live in these illusions, there's always a fear of them being, you know, being disillusioned because that's always possible. There's always a threat on the conditioned plane. That's its nature because it's changing and it's beyond control. So the only way out of that, there is an escape. Atibika way Ajatang aputang akatang asankadang no jaitang bikawe apawisa ajatang aputang akatang asankadang nayetang jadasa budasa kadasa sankadasa nitsaranang panya yeta. There is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And because there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, there is the escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. We're not just helpless victims of the conditions, conditions we find ourselves with. So then, this is the the This is where. We get out of the fear-conditioned realm of change that we have no control over to the deathless, Amravati, deathless realm, or Ajatdang, Aputang, Akatang, Asankatang. There is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And it's merely this, it's here and now, Bajitang Waitidapo we knew he to be experienced individually by the wise, to be you have to know it yourself. It's not you know, I can't my words even can be obstructions if you just grasp words that I'm using. It's not for you to use my words, but 
uh, what I'm saying is like pointing in a direction to look in that direction. Not look at my my finger pointing. Concentrated on, on me, but on the direction. So that direction is clearly stated in the morning chanting, Zantiti ko akali ko ehi pasko opanai ko bhajitang we tidapo inyuhi. Apparent here and now, timeless, leading onwards to be experienced individually by the wise, to be recognized. So, again, this uh, encouragement to use this time, this uh, community retreat time, just for this kind of exploration. You know, keep at it. It's like, it's, uh, if you keep going, if you keep using it, keep reflecting, keep reminding yourself, you know, I've found over the years, now it's so strong, it's so stable in me. It's not like I'm, you know, that's why I can talk like this, because it's something that's been tested and put to test, investigation. For a long time, as continuous as I can make it, through the vicissitudes of life, you know, through the changing conditions of Sangha life, of living in Thailand, living in England, wherever, you know, it doesn't matter. It's uh, who comes and goes, who, who ordains and who disrobes and how conditions change and the developing or degeneration of conditioned phenomena. It doesn't matter really. Don't let any of that be the uh, the the things that you attach to. I remember years ago in here in Amravati, there was a, a woman used to come here, and she was saying that that the sangha was going to fall apart, and everybody was going to disrobe. Told me that. <laughs> And then, of course, the Nando ran away, and we had all kinds of unpleasant experiences from that time. Now, now, what does that do? You know, say to me anyway, as a as someone who felt responsible for all this, that got it going, and was strongly, in many ways, identified with it all. And so it was opportunity to reflect on that, on my own identity with this, with what I've what I've been doing here, Amravati Chitters and Sangha life, and and monks and nuns that I ordained, and the development and and so forth, and then it's kind of seemingly fall apart, seem to go on, you know, kind of like uh, developing magnificently and then it started falling apart. Then the, this determination to be aware of this rather than to be a tendency to be emotionally attached to the emotions of disappointment or blame. You know, something in me wanted to blame others for the degeneration or blame myself, some lack in me. 
you know, something missing in me that couldn't kind of sustain this, this progress and development. So people became disillusioned and left because of me. It was my fault or, or somebody else's. But through all this period, it was to observe this because the, the ego, the Sakyaditi did come up very strongly through this period. But the relationship to Sakyaditi was seeing it, observing it, receiving it. And I had to really determine to do it because it was so believable, so emotionally fraught. Now how I could do that was through resting in this sound of silence because in this sound of silence I can gives me a perspective on my own feelings, on my personal, emotional feelings in the present that I can't have when I'm just merely trying to control emotions or just follow them. So, you know, this is where encouragement to use the life here, your love of it, your disillusionment with it, your your faith, confidence, your when a faith and confidence falls away, your trust and inspiration, your disillusionment, distrust, disappointment, all of it is conditioned phenomena that I encourage you to accept, to see it in terms of Dhamma rather than than letting even the strongest kind of emotional you're having in the, in the present time to let it completely take you over and follow it. It's not controlling the emotion, it's, it's p- having perspective on emotional feelings in the present. So it's not a denial or a rejection. It's being able to see it is what it is. Feeling despair and disillusionment is like this. Feeling inspired is like this. Feeling worried about the Sangha, about what's going to happen, and what the future is like this. So that if you train yourself using the what happens in your life, I- individually or as a group, then this, this confidence, comes to you just because you you know it's a certainty of knowing this is the Dhamma no longer based on faith or inspiration or belief but in in awareness in discernment in panya.